The next speaker in this series is David Basie, Broadway's librarian, who will be speaking next Monday at 6 o'clock on the practice and perils of being Broadway's librarian. It's a great pleasure tonight to welcome Tanya Schmaller, who many of you know and know for the celebrated Schmaller collection of decorated and other papers. And it's a great pleasure to welcome her here tonight, Tanya Schmaller. This is a modern sheet. 
The word Suginagashi means floating ink or ink flow and uses pale shades black, black, indigo and vermilion which are dripped onto water. Extreme delicacy is needed in drawing or blowing the colors into shape. The sort of shapes that clearly show the influence of Japan on the origins of Anu Rok. What we in the West usually mean by marbling is the so-called Turkish kind. This is a sheet recently sold to me in Istanbul, Odeski or Rome, but who knows without analyzing the paper. The technique is to float colors on the side and form patterns by means of combs or other instruments. A sheet of paper sponged with alum water, which acts as a mordant, is laid on the surface and then lifted off and washed to reveal that the pattern has been transferred to it. Quite early on, it is used both as a background for calligraphy and as a decoration in its own right. The oldest marble page I have seen, but was not allowed to photograph, was in the story of Yusuf and Zulaika, Potiphar's wife, supposedly transcribed in 1497. Uh, this was in uh, Turkey, the, uh, that I saw the sheet. There was a lovely page opening dated 1500, on showing the Islamic section of the Metropolitan, which I saw a few days ago. A rather rare example of marble can be seen on a leaf from the Viva Amicorum, which was made in 1572 for Emperor Maximilian II. It's now the Erfurt Municipal Library in East Germany. The quaint lattice design must have been formed by cutting a template and putting this on a marbling tray before the paper was laid over it. The book was meant as a sort of imperial autograph album and contains many other marble leaves with negative template designs of this kind. This is a leaf from another such book dated 1580. Here is a beautiful flower, probably Turkish, circa 1550, owned by the Deutsche Bücherin Leipzig. Two superb examples of early marbling, about 1600, were used on facing end papers of a Persian manuscript now in the Austrian National Library of Vienna. And here is another example. Clearly marbling cannot have reached this pitch of subtle perfection overnight. This example, also from Vienna, is said to be of the 18th century. And I saw a very similar example in the Houghton Library last week. And here is an 18th century marble from India. Now to turn to the beginning of this century. These two pineapple stem sheets were designed by Paul Kirsten for the Aschaffenburger Papierfabrik, a German firm which had a huge output of decorated papers of all sorts as witnessed by the large number of sample books held, for instance, in the paper museum at the Hague, or in the Olga Hirsch collection in the British Library, two of the most important collections. Because there was a limit to the number of slides you could be expected to digest, I've decided to omit examples of the work of well-known American marvelists whom we most likely know, such as Christopher Wyman, who has so exceptional a sense of color, some guy who has established a whole school of marvelists in Seattle, and Richard Wolfe, the rare book librarian at Harvard Medical School, who pursues knowledge about the history and practice of marbling with extraordinary single-mindedness. Any review of contemporary marbling must pay due regard to the Cockrell workshop now near Cambridge. The papers of first Douglas Cockrell and then his son Sidney, both of them famous as bookbinders, have been in continuous production for about 50 years. They have always been made on a paper of durable quality, often a tough, laid craft paper which produces its own subdued background color. If they sometimes seem to be almost too regular and perfect in execution, we should remember that they can be ordered in the addition quantities and be repeated years later. 
Here, for instance, a large oval left unmarked on the red-based paper by the use of a drop of oxfor had to be of consistent size and position to take a gold-stamped design after the binding case of the book had been made in, a, in an edition of 500. During the late 1930s, Thurza Garwood, the wife of the painter and illustrator Eric Williams, made a large number of oil marbles which have greatly given granity. These two papers are by Carly Friggy of Holland. And this by someone called Marie Russo, is in the Vettorelli collection in Milan. There are, of course, dozens, if not hundreds, of excellent marbles all over the world. And so as to circumvent the problem of selection, I can't resist showing some tour de force, not really intended for books. These pansies are by Mustafa Duskulman from Scutari, who signed this sheet in his time in Haberdashery some years ago. The next four of the 1920s were photographed in German and Austrian museums, and are by, if one must know, Walter Seidler and Coleman Moser, in a moment, both the fish, the founder of the Vienna Secession. This is by a marble from East Berlin, Lothar Rehra. Who first thought of brushing thick colored flower paste on a sheet of paper and letting it dry with streaky book brush marks? He or she lived about 1600. Soon somebody had the further idea of dabbing colored paste on two sheets of paper in some sort of rhythmic design. The two sheets were then made wet on wet, pressed or rubbed together lightly, and at once pulled apart. This resulted in darker veining where the paste had been pushed together and in lighter patches where it had been squeezed aside. These not merely distinguished papers were widely used during the later 17th and 18th centuries, particularly in Germany, but I had no slides to illustrate them. Here are two early 20th century paste papers, simple and unexciting. Nothing but a brush was used to create these patterns. The method is cheap and quick, and countless apprentices and binders must have learned to make such papers along with doing other chores. Things livened up when simple tools began to be pulled across the wet paste or pressed into it. This example may have come from the Protestant community of Herrenhood, a small town in Saxony, where a group of celibate sisters engaged in this and other crafts on a considerable commercial scale. Alas, there's nothing left there today of their work. The art historian Rudolf Berliner claims that paste papers designed in this period are so adventurous in style that they seem to anticipate more recent decorative work in their field and can hardly be linked with the orthodox ornamentation of their time. This may also be from the same stable. The use of engraved rollers and stamps in addition to other tools speaks of inventiveness and quantity production. This is the cover of a set of farm accounts of 1798. These are, I think, from the Aschaffenburg factory. It's not always possible to be quite sure. These Scandinavian case papers are probably from the years before the Second World War. They seem to express the same attitude that made Scandinavian furniture and domestic design famous throughout the world. Here is one we made at home to cover a book that presented to Francis Lennon. And these are stamp designs by Gudrun Zapp, the wife of Hermann Zapp, the well-known type designer. 
said, I must refrain from showing examples by American designers you may have, you may probably know. Proteus papers by Veronica Rosita in New England, those of Nancy Storm in Arizona, and Bob Hunter Middleton in Chicago, whose basement was full of engraved rollers neatly hanging from the ceiling. I'm keeping for the last some extraordinary confections photographed in museums in Germany and Italy, hardly book papers, we will say. These two, from the 1920s and 30s, are by Lily Behrens, whose husband was a well-known architect. And the next three, by an Italian, Rosalvetti, who died in 1976. These come from the Bertarelli collection in the Castello Sorcesco in Milan. After these, many pace papers look a little amateurish. It would take too long to trace the history of woodblocks whose flat surface is coated with a pigment carrier of one kind or another before being pressed against, in this case, paper. But it is to this process that we owe what is perhaps the most varied group of decorated papers. Unlike marbling and paste, the woodblock favors the formation of regular patterns only because it is usually repeated several or even many times on one sheet. Most block-printed papers have this in common with paste papers. They were printed and often pre-brushed with pigmented paste, not with oil-based printed ink. There was a close link between printed textiles and paper, so much so that in Germany, such block-printed papers were known as cotton papers. And because textile fashions were changeable, Many cotton designs, one supposes, have a second life on sheets of paper, so I've yet to find a textile which matches a paper I've seen. From the 17th century, only fragments of decorative block printing have survived, usually as linings in boxes or chests. I've recently seen a box in the Victorian Albert Museum in London with a woodblock printed lining paper in black with a diaper of roses, supposedly using printer's pulls from Camden's Britannia so you can no longer see the back of the paper, published in 1605. It was in the 18th century that these papers really flourished, and possibly no more so than at the Remondini establishment in Bassano, which pervades popular imagery on an international scale, as its elegant catalogues prove. Printing decorated papers was a minor activity, and Porteurs carried their religious uh, images and tap some pattern papers and hopes as far afield in Russia. The few Remondini papers carried the maker's name, we're lucky in being able to identify many of them because over a thousand blocks survived from the foundation of the establishment in 1861, more than 200 years after its foundation. Eventually these were made available to Giuseppe Rizzi in Varese, who continued to print from them in the time on his way until 30 or 40 years ago. Authentic Rizzi papers are often blind stampy Remondignani in the margin, and the design, and not always the colors, are those we know from sheets of 18th century handmade paper. The Remondini identification is made even more certain when we find missing small details caused by damaged blocks on both ancient sheets and the more recent Rizzi ones. Exact dating is more of a problem. Usually we have to be content with deriving an approximate date the design from a dated publication wrapper in it, though this can of course be misleading. We reasonably assume that most of the examples to follow belong to the second half of the 18th century. <coughs> this daring design in the Vettarelli collection is of unknown origin, though doubtless Italian. The ochre and red seem to have been applied by hand, and the zigzag pattern looks oriental. 
in the same connection as this Ramadini sheet, printed in black and white on paper previously brushed pink. Some distances in the detail of the upper and lower parts prove that the sheet was printed from one large block. The sheer diversity of designs you could get was remarkable. In these sheets, the same block used with different colors gives a quite different effect. Fine details like the dots were made by nailing metal pins, which could be of many different thicknesses, into the block. This last one, a modern rinse paper, was used by Francis Mendel on a non-such press edition of Tennyson's In Memoriam. There were two methods of printing. Neither the dampened paper was placed on a resilient backing, the block put on top and given a sharp wrap with a mallet or pressed down by leverage, or the paper was laid over the block, which was clamped to a table. A felt-covered roller was then passed over them under moderate pressure. Though the Ramondini dominated the market, they did not monopolize it, there were several other makers in Bassano in the early 19th century, but these sheets are rare. This strange geometric pattern encircling little poses is Carlo Bertinazzi, number one, Bologna, and very different from anything that Raimondini ever did, from the BLA. This afternoon I saw another Bertinazzi in the New York Public Library collection. Another Bolognese printer who named his sheets was Petuzzi, the discoloration down the middle appears on many surviving sheets, and no doubt is the result of their being stored in folded files print inside out. From Petuzzi in Bologna, Penuzzi in Florence. This design also appears among other printers' productions. Copyright is pretty well unenforceable. Popular designs are freely plagiarized. Remondini continued to produce their papers into the 1850s with eleven more debased colors and color combinations, and in the end, on wretched paper. Still in Italy, about 60 years ago, the Contessa Eleonora Gallo began to apply her knowledge of old regional Italian peasant art to a series of pattern papers of great individuality. At her home in Osimo near Ancona, she made these crisp woodcuts and did her own printing. Later, the Florentine firm of Giannini in the Piazza Pitti took on the printing from her original blocks. Unfortunately, they have now transferred them all to offset plates, often scaled down, and print them on lifeless thin paper. The result is no more than a tolerably pretty wrapping paper. This mythical anthem four-legged bird from Sicily is also by the Gallon. A monogram, an E or N inside a heart surmounted by a cross of, cross of Lorraine, can usually be discovered somewhere on this sheet in the vertical plant stems. A few years earlier, an interesting project was carried out at the paper mill near Pistoia in northern Tuscany to provide work for the wives and daughters of paper makers who had all been called up during the First World War. Under the guidance of Flavia Farinacini, the women printed excellent woodblock designs, many derived from ornaments of earlier periods. This workshop, called Lima, closed down in the 1920s, but after the Second World War, the blocks were acquired by three elderly sisters by the name of Vitali. The papers were sold under the name Castellari and worthily continued the Italian tradition of artistry and craftsmanship. The youngest of the three sisters, Pia, who died a few years ago, aged over 90, told me that the pastel colors were painstakingly applied by hand. 
they had their workshop near Luca at Pescia, and sometimes used the famous local Magnani handmade paper. They even had their own handsome watermark, a dolphin. Not until they were well into their 70s did they call it a, a day. The blocks went to Piazzesi in Venice, their shop in the Campiero della Centrina in San Marco was very well known, and these are papers they produce today. But the Lima Castellari papers are no longer printed because they would be too highly priced, so they're now virtually impossible to come by. One frequent user of these papers was Giovanni Mardesteig and his world-famous hand-press, the Officina Bodoni at Verona. Here are a few of his books, bound in his vellum spine. In 18th century France, decorated papers were printed by the so-called Dominantiers, a name derived from Dominus, Lord and Saviour, because they were also producers of popular images of saints, and also of mythical or historical scenes, such as the death of Marlborough, the history of the prodigal son. The papier dominante are usually more modest in design and execution than their Italian counterparts. Fewer complete sheets have survived. The printer publisher's name and town always appear along one age with varying spellings. They're usually printed in a single color and hand-colored by so-called penseurs or colorists. Paris, Orléans, and Rouen are the main centers. High serial numbers, as on this Perdue design from Orléans, indicate that the choice of patterns was considerably. I think one really must consider them to be wallpapers. This and the previous example are in the Loring collection as well, but perhaps the most important in America. This paper that looks like the work of the modern painter Vasarelli is 18th century and from the Musée des Arts et Traditions Populaires, the Bois de Boulogne in Paris. This detail from a rustic video is said to be Dutch and dated about 1780. The scene is printed in four colors and on the full sheet repeated twice. It would be marvelous if one could discover a piece of cotton with the same design and prove on this stick is right. This is really a textile pattern. Decorated papers were frequently used to wrap our dissertations on musical parts. We'll see some others later. This is said to be English from Vienna in the first half of the 19th century. Gold often plays a prominent part, particularly in German papers. Of course, only bronze powder mixed with varnish, and these papers are thus called gold varnish. This example on a pinhead ground is in the VLA. It almost seems to be the work of an enamorer or goldsmith. A squirrel climbs around these golden arabesques, overprinted on a background of mauve and red flowers. This is a detail from an outstanding sheet in the Olga Hirsch collection at the British Library. End of carousel. After these block printing examples, I want to introduce an entirely different technique, the engraved and heated copper plate from which under heavy pressure an embossed sheet is produced. These are sorted through logical improbabilities composed around the display tail of a peacock, are formed by leaf metal, an alloy of 
copper, tin and zinc to simulate gold. In Germany, which was the locus classicus for these papers from the late 1600s all through the next century, they are rather confusing and called brocade papers. In England and America, we call them Dutch built, Dutch probably being a corruption of Deutsch and nothing to do with Holland. Foreigners are often blamed for producing inferior goods. Three out of about 50 known makers in Augsburg and Nuremberg had the land share of the market. In Albert Henry's book on decorated papers, Bible on the subject, he has catalogued some 600 designs. At the height of the embossing fashion, from about 1740 to 1790, at least 10 new designs a year came out. Henry records only five makers outside Germany, Raymondini is among them. There's only one 18th century embossing plate known to have survived. It measures about 12 by 16 inches and is a quarter of an inch thick. The press was similar to an etching press. Plate and paper were laid on a movable bed and passed under a heavy roller. On the hollowed out and engraved areas, the gold received no pressure and could be brushed off. You can see a picture of the press behind this from the museum. And here is his lady dressed in decorated sheets. <laughs> These illustrations are by Martin Engelbrecht, Augsburg, 1740, and were produced from the copy in the Library of Congress. I believe we added the color ourselves. Another menagerie owned by the DNA has curious diagonally stenciled lozenges. The great difference in scale among the animals suggests that the plate was made up of separate small elements and the sheet meant for cutting out. Goethe writes that when he was six or seven, a fair bit of his pocket money went on colored sheets of paper embossed with golden animals. In some cases, the paper was stencil colored first before being gold embossed, and in some cases, it was stenciled afterwards in a very random way. These embossed papers were also much used to wrap up dissertations. This is a selection, and we own an album in which an invalid or a child, a mature child one feels because the cutting out is so perfect, is pasted in the animals that is sought. Next, a strange detail from a sheet by Georg Pop of Fruit, circa 1710, from a private collection in Germany. And some further examples same other collections. To digress, I think someone should do some research into the trade which took place in paper and binding materials generally. In the Bibliothèque Nationale, there's a letter dated 1698, written in Strasbourg, reporting at length on the purchase of reams of gilded marbled paper via Frankfurt from Augsburg, where the laborers would do their work more neatly than in Nuremberg. The invention of lithography brought about immense changes. As the 19th century wore on, almost everything became possible. Ornaments drawn with unprecedented machine precision could be turned into repeat patterns, which were extensively used in the 1880s and into the beginning of this century. Printed paper could be embossed to simulate anything from moiré silk to crocodile skin or figured wood. The past was raided mercilessly, and only rarely were the results of a kind, as perhaps here, 
but a hundred years later we can look at with pleasure, <coughs> of course one can with curiosity. Then came our new war, which under Japanese interest developed an entirely new language of ornament. <coughs> the five examples in the German Jugendstil sample book belong to the period 1900 to 1910. The background is an our new pastiche by Martin Battleford, used as a binding for a Cambridge University Christmas book. The late 19th century was, of course, the period of William Morris's magnificent block-printed furnishing material and wallpapers, but he did not produce decorated papers which could be used for binding. There are now albums of gift wraps featuring these designs and those of others. The next development offset lithography, and here the Kerwin Press in London did pioneer work in the 1920s under Harold Kerwin and Oliver Simon. They felt that printing should be joyful, as they called it, proved that it could be. Many of the Kerwin papers have been kept in print to this day, and a new specimen book of Kerwin pattern papers has just been produced by the Whittington Press, found in this Claude Lover Fraser paper. New designs were commissioned, and the enterprise of the Kerwin Press in the 20s and 30s epitomizes the best in pattern design of that lively period. For example, Painter Paul Nash was one of several artists who used wood engraved motifs for lithographically printed repeat patterns. Herwin papers included designs by such eminent graphic artists as Enid Marx, Eric Robinius, and Edward Gordon, in addition to those already named. The war put a temporary stop to the growth of this series. How happily these papers lived on books is shown by this handful of volumes from the Novel Library series, a collection of classics published soon after the war by Hamish Hamilton and printed at the Kerwin Press. I think they were sold at late shillings and sixpence. Simultaneously, the new paperback market came into the orbit of decorated papers, first with this remarkable series of Penguin musical pocket scores. This may have been the most handsome low-printed music ever published. Normally, it's two shillings and sixpence, though the fatter volumes cost more. Then came the Penguin Poets, also in the same price range, but with a far greater circulation. The designs were specially commissioned. All this has now been swept away by the Victorian Revolution, which requires books to have a picture on the cover rather than a typographic design. No discussion of decorated papers in the context of the 20th century trade book would be adequate without mention of the German Inselbrücherei, launched in 1912, was originally dressed in excellent reproductions of Remondini papers. One of these is shown bottom right. On a long journey to its thousandth volume in 1978, the covers encompassed everything from the humble potato cut to the noble etching. There are, of course, other methods of producing patterns, engraving, potato, and other vegetable cuts, liner and eraser cuts, tree bark rubbing, etc. Here now is in the ceremony. <coughs> These are woodcut designs by John de Paul. These are some patterns by W. A. Dwiggins. place them as there are conflicting reports as to how they're done, either a resist technique or by the use of grooved plaster padded plates. The well-known papers of the late Ingeborg Borgeson of Sweden were also marveled. <coughs> These are by an Italian binder friend. 
This is an etching by the late Eliza Ingalls of Baltimore. These are monotype decorations arranged by Frederick Ward in 1928. And these some type of papers designed by Henry Thur in Hungary in the 20s. Abruptly, I'm switching to the east in the last century. This tarnished gold paper with an overprinted pattern in two colors forms part of a collection of textiles and paper made in India during the 1850s by the Schlackenweitz, five explorer brothers from Munich who were employed for three years by the East India Company. One of them was murdered while on duty, and another wrote books on the Mormons, the prairies of the American West, Santa Fe and South Pacific Line. One set of these is, is, these papers and textiles is in the India office in London. Though these papers were bought in Delhi, I am sure they originally came from China because they strikingly resemble the so-called Chinese tea chest papers, thin sheets covered with even thinner metal foil and overprinted with traditional patterns. Last week in New Haven, I found a loose book cover with the left-hand side paper on it. Similar papers were also produced without metal foil. Dating is difficult, but the papers that she made in the 1920s may be about right. In the American Typefinders collection in the Butler Library, there are sample books of these papers. So we go further, east to Japan. To the east from here or west, not sure. Both. <laughs> Where the arts of paper making and paper conversion have a unique and uninterrupted history of 1300 years and where paper makers, like potters and weavers, receive national honors. Horrative papers with all over designs printed from woodblock have been known in Japan since the 18th century as chiyogami. These are from the end of last century. I should make it clear that there are four designs there. I've got to put a division between them. And five different ones here. Another design of the mid-19th century in the DNA shows blossoms and maple leaves floating on windswept water. In this sumptuous paper with yellow, in this one, the yellow circles have an almost metallic sheen through the addition of powdered mica to the pigment. This slide and the next show what amazing things the Japanese could do to paper while it's in the mold. Here, flocks of pale yellow paper fiber have settled at random on the dark blue fibers of the base sheet. And while this gold-flecked sheet was in the mold, a lacy layer of white paper made in a different mold at the same time was transferred and bonded to it. Here, the pattern of spirals is in the paper itself, made by directing water jets at it while it's in the making. These are further beautiful examples of treating paper while in the making. All three are in the paper collection of the Deutsche Bücherei Leipzig and were probably exhibited in the Vienna World Exhibition in 1873, an exhibition of Oriental artifacts which had a great influence on European design. This is a binding made of very thick paper, embossed while wet, 
with a sort of wooden rolling pin on which the design had been cut by Sekichiro Gorto. We all know origami, the Japanese art of paper folding. Orizomigami means paper stained while folded or pleated. I've repeated this sheet to show how the colors were applied to the ridges by dipping and then allowed to run into the vanity with the absorbent paper. This is a spectacular sample of pleating in four directions using natural indigo and lamp black as pigments. Yeah, Orizomigami has been done in a way that might arouse the envy of an abstract painter. The full sheet consists of just these six large squares, each made up of four smaller ones. This is Momigami, a sheet of red paper gilded and then rubbed to form a design. If you want to know more about this, I refer you to Suki Hughes in Washi, the world of Japanese paper, because it's an extremely complicated process. Almost last among the techniques for decorating paper that I want to show is Japanese stencil dyeing, kakuzamegami. It's a complex process in which starch is squeezed onto paper through in intricately cut stencils. I don't know whether this slide helps you to understand the process, probably not. When dry, the paste forms a protective layer or resist, which allows the dyes to get at the paper only where it has remained unprotected. The dyes are applied across the whole sheet and deeply penetrate the highly absorbent paper. When thoroughly dry, the paper is soaked in lukewarm water. The starch softens and can now be rinsed off. Any dye that may have got onto the starch gets washed off with it. The protective areas now emerge white or whatever was the original paper color but the dyes stay as they are because the soaking and rinsing does not affect them. Old stencils are cut on heavy, dark brown paper that has been toughened by repeated immersion in astringent persimmon juice and by aging. They are masterpieces of craftsmanship whose makers are held in as high esteem as great paper makers. Stencil dyeing of textiles goes back more than 500 years, and Okinawa is particularly famous for its stenciled cotton and silk kimonos. The influence of the Okinawan style can be seen on this example. This looks dull enough, but it's part of a piece of great historic interest. The first eyewitness account printed about Japan was by Engelbert Kempfer, who had traveled there in 1690. The things he collected were bought by Sir Hans Sloane, and Sloane's vast and varied hoard in due course became the foundation collection of the British Museum. Kemper's 300-year-old patent paper scroll, from which this is a detail, has been there ever since. Close examination seems to indicate that it must have been stenciled, though Japanese experts say that this was not done on paper until much later. Here is another Katazomigami dating from the 1930s. Kyoto is a great center for making these papers, and in the Morita paper store there are several hundred different designs or color combinations can be seen. Not many are to be found in England, perhaps it's different, things are different here. Some of the designs are now reproduced by silk screen. Here is a beautiful design, the essence of Japan. And here are some storm-tossed boats which have been transformed into pure ornaments. The stenciling workshops are, I believe, small family concerns. Despite trying, we were never able to visit one. 
there's a Kato as used on the binding of a finely printed book from the Benedictine nuns at Santa Gabby in Worcestershire in England. Just as resist stenciling is associated with Japan, so batik is associated with Java and with Indonesia in general. Yet these superb papers were made in the 1920s by a small German company who developed semi-mechanical means of applying the design in the form of a wax resist. By crinkling the sheets, the wax coating was cracked and so allowed the dyes to penetrate the paper. Francis Menel used them on one or two non-such press books and they were cheap enough to be used for quarter binding on ordinary trade books by, for instance, Jonathan Cape in England and Hispania Liberite in America. Here is another sheaf. They would make lovely dress materials. I'm left with one more way of applying pattern to paper. Once more stenciling comes into it and we look back about 400 years. Certain Persian manuscripts have borders that have been brushed, sprinkled through stencils into which the sort of designs we describe as arabesques have been cut. This example comes from a leader I'm recording in the Victorian Albert Museum. Like an old blunderbuss is to a machine gun, so the stiff brush used for early sprinkling is to the modern airbrush. This stenciled airbrush design and the next two, which at last bring this talk to an end, are redolent of the brittle 1920s and 30s. The style often called Art Deco. Thank you for listening. <laughs>